Hello and welcome to the Comic Lira podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and penny dreadfuls. I'm your host, the soon to be known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my magnetic co-host, it's Jamie. People might wonder why I laughed at <laughs> saying magnetic. Why is that a funny word? It's not by itself. What is funny is the fact that this is the second attempt at a recording because <sighs> of a faulty XLR cable. Luckily, luckily most of my close friends are musicians and so i was able to source a spare xlr cable relatively briefly we had a nice little drive in a hire car that i have for work that was fun wasn't it it was fun um it felt a bit like uh i mean it was a it was a podcast emergency so mm. it was kind of like it was less than driving someone to the hospital but with all the vigor of like we need to get there now and get back now so we can talk about comic books yeah 100 percent. but we got there in the end yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've had many, like, collaborative video or podcast projects in the past. Not collaborative, no. Normally just solo. The guy... <laughs> Why is that? Why hand is... style, <laughs> solo. Going... Um, the guy we went and got the XLR cable from. Yeah. Um, I used to make videos about guitars with on the internet. And there is a day that we did an entire skit vlog because we had to go and like do the same kind of trip we just did. Right. We had to like pop to a guitar shop, grab like a string or whatever for a guitar that we were demoing. And then we ended up going to Aldi to get snacks and I was recording it all. <laughs> and the vlog of us taking a little break from vlogging was probably better than the actual video itself. See, I was going to make the point of that's actually good going to the guitar shop to get the string because that's inherently related it's to the brand, topic yeah. yeah but then stopping for snacks i was like oh i'm gonna take back my compliment because that's just that's <laughs> not the but because my point is gonna be if we couldn't video this like us going to get the cable and come back so like that's not comic book related <laughs> and we are almost exclusively a comic book podcast just, just xlr cables not working so there would have been no point kind of getting into it um we we lost the banter the bat is gone into the ether because that's how banter works you can't recreate oh, banter guys if only it was so good it's probably our most um intellectually stimulating conversation i think we've ever had yeah, it really was. We really put the world to rights in that six minutes before you realised the mic wasn't working. But the golden rule of podcasting is if you can't use it 100%, then it's just gone. It's gone to the ether. Maybe it'll come back organically one day, but <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. So this week, we are here to talk about a, it's a bit of an older title. Um, basically, what's going to happen is every once in a while, we'll do an older one to basically appease Jamie's need for reviewing good content yeah absolutely as opposed to sometimes the middle of the road content there was dissent among the amongst the ranks after all the superhero content wasn't there and that's fair enough i wouldn't even say necessarily it's because it's superhero but more because the quality i mean we've been into this we've been into a hundred times but it's is the whole modern the, the most successful comics tend to be less creatively fulfilling um and interesting than the than the kind of lesser known ones or some of the old classics. And yeah. that's that's kind of what we're doing here and today. And you alerted me to the existence of this comic quite recently and I was like, my guy, we have to talk about it. Well, just so we get the the lore of the podcast correct, it was actually because we did a previous title that um, the artist for did this. To hold the suspense no longer, we are talking about the 
Pride of Baghdad, which is a... I had all the stuff open a second ago. So it was written and published in 2006. Yes, written Uh, by... Brian K. Vaughan. Who we've done once before and is now joining the illustrious, esteemed halls of writers who we've done two works of. And he is by far, probably collectively, our favourite comic book writer after the man, the (laughs) The legend. legend... Alan Moore. <laughs> who, if you do watch our shorts, then this will this comes out a month after. But a month ago, there was quite an on-point Alan Moore short that came about. So keep an, uh, keep an eye out in the past for that. <laughs> but, um, but yes, second time doing uh, Brian K. Vaughan. And the, this will be the first time doing the second work of an artist. Mm. So the reason this came up at all in a previous episode is because we did um, something by, uh, we searched the pronunciation of his name, I'm probably going to get it wrong again, but uh, an artist named Nico Henrichon, who did something previously that I do not off the top of my head have right now, but he did something. something. He did something that we were like, that's decent. And I, he did something that we thought, it's, it's doing the job. So it was a... I, it was a title that we were like, it's fine, it's okay. And we thought the art was like doing the job. Was it Something's Killing the Children? No, maybe. I think it was Something's Killing the Children, you know. So quick Googling, and uh, he was, did the art for Meet the Scrolls. Meet the Scrolls. So the thing with that was, we liked the art of some of the specific like transition changing parts like yeah some some of it was cool wasn't it but most of it was like your bulk standard marvel dc like we just need you to tell the story and i have to admit straight off the bat getting into this one we can talk about the context for it later of course he knocked it out of the fucking part yes and i think this comic book looks phenomenal and i think this proves our point in almost writing and art when you i think that when you're part of the bigger companies specifically marvel and dc yeah you are hired to do a job you are hired to deliver a product of it the art needs to just show what's going on and look a bit interesting the writing is you can go a bit interesting in some of the context but the story beats still have to hit the superhero story this was art this comic is a piece of art and it is stunning to the extent that i read it twice and it and and the story the story is the story's kind of relatively simplistic and quite broad um and it's short it's a graphic novel as opposed to an episodic series you'll mm. knock through it in a couple of hours and a single release i believe and as a well. single release yeah absolutely which it definitely reads as it's a graphic novel it's not isn't it issues there's yeah. no like cliffhangers in between or anything no no it's a graphic novel yeah but every single panel just looked gorgeous so should I give some context? Because I actually did a bit of like further reading on it. Well, um, so off the top of my head, I can give the context without having to read anything. Did you cheat the Jamie tells the story portion of the podcast? Yeah, because I'm fascinated by the story. Okay. And so I did some further reading. Um, and so I know a bit about the book. I'm just going to mark it down as you cheated on, this, on the test. Okay. okay. So um, the book was written, the book was produced in 2006 which is kind of three years after the initial invasion of Iraq. Just a quick one. This is probably the highest acclaim that a a comic book or graphic novel can achieve on this series. Not only did you read it twice, 
but you also did extra. You did um, further reading. I really liked it. <laughs> what do they call it in America? It's like the bone, like not bonus question. The extra or, credit. The extra extra credit. I did extra, did the credit, extra credit. Yeah, exactly. So sorry. Continue. So the comic book is set in Baghdad. It is told from the perspective of a pride of lions who escape from the Baghdad Zoo after the initial American invasion of Iraq. Um, it was written three years after the fact, which I think is really important here because Brian K. Vaughan, when he found out about this story, instantly wanted to write a comic book about it. But the feeling at the time was that if you said anything negative about the Iraq war, it would be seen as really unpatriotic. Um, if for our, for our American listeners, obviously you will remember this and you'll, you'll have a really keen understanding of this. If you're British and you don't have an understanding of this, um, it's really good to go and listen to a TV show that Ryan and I have both recommended, which is Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Mm. um, because that's set post 9-11 and it gives you a really, really good idea of what the feeling was in America directly after 9-11 and during the Iraq War. Um, And so this is Brian Brian K. Vaughan's retelling of a true story of a bunch of animals that ended up getting that ended up escaping from the Baghdad Zoo when the Americans invaded. That was the best answer you've ever given. And it shows, <laughs> I'm saying it shows that you cheated. <laughs> this is like when a student handed an essay, is like, this is too good for your level. You've cheated. Like, Dude, you, you got chat GBT. <laughs> I was reading Guardian and New York Times articles about the actual lions. I can tell you about the actual animals if you want. I mean, um, that's, it's good that you did, because I didn't, so... <laughs> but they're not... We're flip, flip reversing it for this week, yeah? Yeah, so... Oh, one thing quick, but while I remember, I, it's, it's an interesting topic when you say about the lack of criticism yeah. in media during the time. The first, I think, well-known instance of cancel culture was for exactly that. Yeah, do you 100%. Know, do you know who it was? No. So it was a group called the Dixie Chicks. Uh, yeah, no, I'm familiar with yeah. it. Yeah. So they literally were abroad, uh, so uh, some other country, and they said, by the way, we are American, but we don't support, support Bush's elite. I think they literally call it like Bush's illegal war or something like that. And what makes that so prominent is that the Dixie Chicks were a country music act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their Beloved entire in the base were hugely pro-Republican, pro-war, pro-military, everything. So when, as soon as they said that... Their entire base was like, fuck you, we're done with you, when we won't come to your shows or listen to your music or anything. So the first instance of what is now assigned to the left of, you know, cancel culture and all that is, was started, maybe not started, but was definitely like pioneered by the right. I think it's so fascinating because we do have a left-right divide in Britain, but not to the same extent that they do in America. Um, and actually, when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's still the American right that that cancel things. So the cancel culture among people in the left is we get angry about stuff on Twitter and we call and people get called out and kind of careers get changed. Um, but anybody that gets cancelled by kind of woke culture ends up coming back and their career survives it, and that happens, you know. Um, A great example is Louis C.K., who is doing stand-up again. Yeah. Um, When the right do it, people aren't allowed to do drag shows in libraries anymore. Yeah. And Uh, you're not allowed to, like, 
access healthcare. Yeah. The right in America are still incredibly potent, aren't they? Yeah, there is a larger, there's a larger conversation debate about whether celebrities and rich people, if they can actually be cancelled or not, for lack of a yeah. better term. And the the actual um, issue of it is not my favourite comedian can't do stand-up for a year, yeah. but it's everyday people who who lose jobs because of things they've posted have you ever heard of so you've been publicly shamed the john ronson yeah yeah i've not i've heard of it i've not read it i've read it it's phenomenal Mm. it's phenomenal um so for again for anybody who's not familiar with john ronson's work you should absolutely be reading some john ronson um he is a british journalist who operates kind of on the fringes and is re- he, he, he gets interested in the topics that most people leave alone. I'm actually looking at a whole bunch of his books on my bookshelves right now. He wrote The Many Stare at Goats, mm. um, which is a phenomenal piece of journalism, got made into a film that doesn't really do it justice. No. He wrote um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and he also did a documentary about porn. And his documentary about porn is fascinating, and it really cuts into what, what, what were the issues with porn in the noughties just as it was going online and people were consuming it differently um yeah john ronson highly rate him as an author um i've gone on a tangent i mean we've gone on a tangent so i'm not gonna let you take all the blame but i think again so this comic this comic book is based on a true news story and so it's not highly spoilable um and so i've kind of given you the synopsis already if you're interested enough from that go read it the crux of the matter is that American soldiers got charged upon by a bunch of what they thought were feral lions and shot them. Not knowing the lions were not native to, I mean, whether they're feral or not, like, I think anyone in this situation would be like, I don't, I'm not going to discern whether it's, <laughs> it's a feral or domesticated lion. Yeah. I'm, you know. The implication in the comic book is certainly that they weren't aware. Yes. The crux of the matter is they were expecting not to see a lot because they were walking through a part of the city that had just been quite heavily bombed. And what they found were a bunch of lions running towards them. And so, yeah, they, they acted and they acted in a way that, you know, as a human being, kind of fucking reasonable. You know, you, mm. see, you see a predator run towards you, you have a gun in your hand. Well, so... What, what were they going to do to subdue the lions? True. But the specific point I think that it makes in the book is that they fire upon the lion first before they even know they're there. And then they say afterwards, oh, they charged us. So that then becomes like a police brutality kind of metaphor of, you know, it happening one way, then them saying it happened another way afterwards. And I suppose the key thing that we're going to end up getting into quite deeply when we talk about this book is that the lions are personified. Yes. They all have, they have access to language, they speak, and... Each of the lions is kind of meant to represent a different subsection of the Iraqi population's attitude towards the war. Yes, and to like, and to, and to Al Qaeda rule and to Saddam. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so these lions are giving voice to what Brian K. Vaughan, with three years worth of retrospect, saw to be the different differing opinions of Iraqis on the invasion. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite a contentious topic, isn't it? I mean, at the time when it released, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think 
you know, even now, even though we're what twenty years removed from it, um, yeah, we're this year. This year marks the anniversary. We're twenty years removed from the invasion of Iraq. I still think it's a bit of a watershed moment for our generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, I follow a lot of like politics and stuff mm. on on um, especially specifically like online and YouTubers and stuff because that's kind of where our generation has drifted yeah, to yeah. for news. Um, and we could get like we definitely have to temper ourselves for getting into this too much away from the original title. Yeah, but, I agree. But what I say is one of the people I follow at least specifically references the the invasion of Iraq as like a thing that got them to start work in politics. Yeah. So and he and he's our age. So it's absolutely a watershed moment. And I remember where I was when I saw those tanks rolling in to Baghdad on the news. Like I remember the mo- I remember being a child and being at a, after a karate lesson that I did with a bunch of adults and my parents and all of the adults that I did karate with were all sat around in their geese and their karate suits looking up at a CRT TV hanging off the wall in the bar of this sports hall watching these tanks rolling going what the fuck is going on mm. and so I like it's it's you know it's one of those early childhood memories where you start to realize there's a wider world around you yeah, and so I think specifically for people that are like our age, um, the, the the Iraq is our Vietnam, right? Like it, it's it's that first big international conflict where you realise that war isn't just something you learn about at school; it's something that happens, and it's not necessarily always just, and it's not simple. It's more complicated than just people fighting against the Nazis. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's 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 so and it um. And this comic book, I think, does a really great job of dealing with a really, really sensitive matter in a really nuanced way. Because, of course, you know, we're looking at it once removed. We we weren't even in America. We were in Britain. You know, I mean, British people died, but not anywhere near as many as Iraqis. And it wasn't our home that was being invaded. Yeah. Um, and so actually, Brian K. Vaughan took on something really sensitive here as an American to try and tap into the Iraqi psyche and really try and communicate the way he thinks those people might have felt about their country being invaded. Yeah. One thing I will say, just to try not to tangent any further from the title, but I think it's kind of relatively important when we talk about like it being a watershed moment. I mm. think it being so important to our generation, and it, what, what got me to think of this was when you compared it to Vietnam, mm. I don't think it was the invasion itself or the mobilization of troops or anything that made it significant. I think it was the hindsight and somewhat at the time uh, reveal of the lie of weapons of mass destruction. And it's really telling that that happened just before this book was published. Yep. And I think that 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 changed the landscape enough that he could publish something like this without fear of being being labeled unpatriotic, right? Yeah, exactly. And I what makes me think what could have been different had they have gone into the country and found said weapons yeah. or evidence of or whatever and look see here's what we said and we've gone and done it the outlook even 20 years later would be so different oh, yeah but that i think was what made it the that's what made it the, uh, comparable to vietnam I it think. would have been considered a just war wouldn't it exactly and that's, <laughs> if that had yeah. happened i think i think the public perception would now be that it was a just war and i think in general amongst any anyone but the most kind of hardline patriotic republican americans 
the Iraqi war is kind of seen as being an unjust war. Yeah, uh, across say. the board, even among the right now, because now the right use it as kind of like an anti-foreign um, policy like yeah. example. And it's a weird one that left and right kind of overlap on without ever properly discussing like yeah i suppose you're right it's become less of a partisan issue hasn't it yeah and but that's the problem is is a lot of partisan politics is like funding and supporting the industrial military complex and there are people on the left and right who are both against that but for different reasons the left is more of like a let's stop bombing people in other countries thing and the right are more like let's stop spending money to bomb people in other countries like that it's it's kind of similar but different viewpoints to the same goal if that makes sense so how did you find the story so one thing i'll start on based on what you said is the personification of the animals mm. i don't know if this is because of like an over analytic reading or attempt a reading but as soon as the start i was kind of trying to gauge how intelligent the animals were and i think this is like this is kind of akin to like an animal farm problem right <laughs> where so when Have you read Animal Farm, not not properly. I know the bits of it, but I mean, I've never touched a book in my life, obviously. But but no, I've not read Animal Farm. Animal Farm is one of those that a lot like it's it's a good en- it's an entryway into literature, into like high literature that yeah. a lot of people would have had in childhood. Yeah, because of the the personification of animals, kind of it has that child children's book feel, and then it's. I remember more when depth. I was, yeah, I remember when I was reading it as a teenager. My dad kind of looked over my shoulder and went, "Poor boxer." Um, and it's like, it was, it was an early book that he and I connected on. Yeah. So in the beginning of this, when they were talking about uh, doing a plan with the, was it the gazelles? Yeah. And so the female should have written down the, the names. Sonia. Yes. She is organizing a plan with the gazelles. So this is before anything's properly kicked off. She's organizing a plan with the gazelles where it's like, they watch themselves around us but when they're in there with you, they, they let their guard down. So if you can nick the keys, we'll get out. Or that basic plan. So reading that, my thinking goes straight to, so are these, in this reading, are these animals intelligent enough that if nothing had happened, could they have facilitated a breakout? Do you know what I mean? What's interesting is then when you get into the mindset of the other female who's really happy in captivity. And I think, so there's a, there's a much older female who remembers more of life before captivity. Mm. And she's saying, actually, in my life in captivity is much better. My meals are more regular. She said, oh, you know, we get fed meat once a week. We wouldn't have gotten that in the old life, in the, in the old ways. And I think what that was there to represent was the fact that they probably could if they were all on the same page. But this is the problem you have in countries with broken regimes. Yeah is that you cannot mobilize enough of the population at once to peacefully overthrow a dictatorial government. Yeah. And just a uh, quick warning, we are about to get onto the topic uh, in the book of non-consensual rape, uh, a part of this book that we go into why it's presented and the choices the writer made to put in as opposed to not putting in so just a warning we're going to talk about that for a few minutes i'm going to put time codes in the description so if you want to skip that part go to the time code you'll find where we've uh, we've stopped talking about it we've moved on to the to the book one thing the first thing i actually probably made a note of was it was quite quickly into the story that we got the older females 
flashback to oh, the time. Yeah. And that I mean, without getting too much into it, it's it's basically a depiction of how bad life like for animals in the wild can be, short of possibly being eaten or not eating because you can't hunt, it gets into how essentially animal mating is is for lack of a for lack of a better term very non-consensual for for yeah. animals and and again i think it it taps into a very and and this is the thing i think when you get into animal mating habits you're able to remove yourself from it because they are non-human but once you personify them and give them voices yeah that's really jarring yeah and it, and 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 i and i i will i will i will definitely um put a trigger warning on this episode just for this bit um, yeah because, that's what i was thinking yeah, yeah no absolutely because it, it's it's a really challenging rape scene isn't it yeah and it's it's not showing it it's definitely implying that that's what's go- about to happen before the flashback cuts out which yeah at least it was so soon into the book that i was a bit taken aback by how soon it was but then once i finished it i realized if you're gonna do that you could only do that that early on it put me in mind of the way that that kind of scene functioned in a game of thrones like how necessary how necessary was it to the actual story yeah and i think obviously you know yeah and and i, and I think have you read a game of thrones not the books. I, Have you seen the series? Like I said, I've never touched a book in my life. Right. So in a Game of Thrones, in, in in Game of Thrones season one, mm. there is a scene of non-consensual sex between Daenerys and um whatever his name is, Khal Drogo. Yes. In the book, that's a lot more jarring because obviously Amelia Clark is an adult. Daenerys in the book is eleven or twelve years old. Yeah. Um. And I think the feeling when that book came out in the 90s was that it was completely gratuitous. And I can understand that. You know, I I can understand people not wanting to be confronted with that in their fiction. But I think it served the same purpose here as it did there, which it gives you a very strong sense of setting. We are not talking about here and now. We are talking about a place where this happens and is accepted, right? Yeah. I'd say the difference... I'd say... For me, I think it's it's really hard to put down because to pin it down because on the one hand, it's more relevant to this because if you are talking about animals in the wild, then it it's factual. Whereas for a fantasy setting, even if you're trying to get across like the harsh reality of of this fantasy world, mm. there's still an element of you chose to put that in or to do, to the degree that it was presented. Hundred percent, and it's it's hard to read, right? Yeah. It's really hard to read. Um, but I think here here it served a purpose. And I, th- I think it was a bit unnecessary for it to be more than one male. Like I think that that w- like almost was like twisting the knife a bit, like mm. unnecessarily. I think it could have been one, and you would have got the same point across. I think Brian K. Vaughan he does have a habit of going a bit more extreme in in some of his writings. For I don't want to say for shock value, but definitely to raise stakes and make the tone darker and things like that but again then you come back to well, there's a scene in another book of his we're both big fans of yes saga yeah where a character goes to a planet that is a brothel 
and is presented and offered a very young girl. Um, and ultimately he rescues her and mm. he, 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 he makes the obvious choice that everyone would make that that's fucked up. Yeah. But yeah, Brian K. Vaughan is really willing to go to quite dark places with sexual content. And, you know, part of me thinks that art imitates life and it's important that art reflects life and, you know, this shit happens. But also, I yeah, I agree with you that the level that he takes it to is fucking jarring, isn't it? Yep. And it's hard to read. Um, you know, and uh, but then again, he's often doing it with aliens and animals and, you know, he's removing it from us with a degree of separation, but that doesn't make it any easier to consume, does it? Yeah. I think I'm going to do this all, all on the recording. Uh, I think I'm going to do a message now that I can put before this part yeah, and literally put a time code in. I'm going to leave this part in because I just want to be like as, as open as possible for everything. So, so having gone through that, as I said, it was jarring at the start, yeah. but, and it's, it's gone, we've moved past it very quickly in, in the, in the context of the story. Yeah. Um, it then kind of, sh- it does talk about then like life outside versus life inside. Yeah. And it is interesting that the animals that have never been uh, lived outside well, two of them haven't. So the younger female and the child have ne- have been raised in captivity. The male had a bit of time outside, but then there's a large conversation about his experience was far different to anyone else's. He was yeah. a, a he was a, a a pack leader, head of the pride. So his experience was you know different. And throughout the there's there's a really pivotal moment in the book where the son is with the dad, and he calls his mum mum. He calls his dad by his name. He calls him Zilla. Um, and, uh, they're looking at some prey and the kid's like, well, Zilla, should we go for it? And he's like, I'm not a hunter. I'm a fighter. Mm. Like I never hunted. And it's, yeah. I mean, I suppose again, it taps into the very real lived experience of a pride of lions where the male sleeps for 23 and a half hours a day and spends the rest of the time eating and fucking. And the experience of female lions in the pride who are out hunting all the time to get enough calories in. Yep. But then it also speaks to what will have been a very real lived experience for women living in Saddam's regime. Yeah. And it cuts into that issue so sharply, doesn't it? That actually, you know, the the female character who has only lived under that regime is craving freedom. Yep. Uh, Zaffer, the older female, yeah. she, it, it's quite a, I thought it was like a smart plot point to have her choose to stay. Or at least try to. Exactly. Before. And and to be fair, when you're reading it, you, you think, oh, she's staying. Like, it's not like a, it's not like a superhero comic where Superman's like, I'm going to sit this one out for the rest of the, the comics. Like, Mate, your name's on the title. Like, of course you're coming back. It and was different. It feeds into the actual story as well because a couple of the li- a couple of the lions chose to stay in the zoo. Yeah, yeah. the actual lions that there was. I think there were two lions and a tiger left in the zoo when the Americans found it, and they were able to rescue those ones. Right. Um. But yeah, no. And she tried to stay in captivity. But what's really interesting is that so much chaos had been caused that she didn't have the option. Yeah, yeah. And and I suppose that's the thing that there was a there you know you read about a certain subset of the population after that invasion who were like, well I was quite happy and comfortable under the old regime. 
and now my country's been torn apart by war and i don't have that option the americans took that option from them yeah yeah it does feel like every story beat is a metaphor for everything else Mm. so that's even though it's it was such a short comic to get through there's it's so dense in metaphor and i think this is one of those that i'm reluctant to even call it a comic this is a graphic novel yeah 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 i don't i feel the same way about this that i do about like from hell or mouse or something like that yeah this is a graphic novel mouse is an apt comparison i was i was gonna say that earlier and i i had the thought of it's it's definitely comparison like presentation of a real story yeah it's the content is def it puts it below mouse because because of the heavy human uh stories of mouse but it's but it's comparable in you know this telling of a story this is very fictionalized even though it's a a real story because it's personification of animals but then mouse is a very real human story using animals to tell the story so it's even more comparable on that level as well i mean i think you know in in 2006 this is the only way an american could have told a a story about the iraq war yeah i think people would have um There'd been more backlash if it was just the same story, but humans. And you think, you know that film with um the big handsome fella, the sniper? Yeah, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, yeah Bradley yeah. Cooper. That was set in either Iraq or Afghanistan, wasn't uh, it? American Sniper was the name. American but, yes. Sniper. Was that set in Iraq or Afghan? I don't know. What one of one but, of the two. But you know, one of the one of the kind of early twenty first century American invading in the Middle East wars. Yes. There's a couple of them. Um and we weren't ready for that story for like 20 years before it came out. And yep. I don't even think people were really ready for it when it came out. I don't know if the, the main character did die in real life. Like he was shot in real life like years after. And I don't, mm. know, I don't know when in relation to him, the, his story in the film finishing, yeah. like when that, if that affected the release or not. But this came out while the war was still going on. Yeah. Like yeah. That's, that's fucking bold. And I think if you were telling a human story, about that war it would have been way too fucking soon i mean also again try not to get on a big tangent on this when did the war end <laughs> we'll leave it that because that's a hot that's a whole oh nother, my god well it depends again that's it, a whole nother podcast yeah it depends on which date you pick doesn't it exactly you know? yeah um and i don't think either of us are really qualified to have that conversation mm. but the fact that he told this story while the war was still very actively going on like he told a war story about an active war and managed to make it nuanced and timely and interesting and i'm not going to say whether or not it's offensive to iraqis because i'm not an iraqi mm. um but it didn't there was no jingoism do you know what jingoism is i've heard it and i i literally am trying to recall like... jingoism is where you get really like morbidly patriotic about yeah. war <laughs> yeah yeah quite an american pastime let's be frank here i mean we're british so we can't talk really like not as recently but it's in, it's in our dna oh fuck yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know men men to make do <laughs> yeah. rosie the riveter exactly <laughs> so we came to this initially because of the artist in a kind of roundabout way um one of the panels made me write its own note and the note that I made for it was Jesus Christ the giraffe. When it loses its fucking head. When its head explodes off its neck. And the art is... There's a lot of other 
the most of the book is very beautifully drawn. This was a anatomically here's what it looks like if a giraffe's head explodes yeah um it's one page i I think it's one page of just that or it's like a significant portion of a page yeah i mean this panel layout is interesting here we're not Mm. we're not seeing we're not seeing a straight horizontal thirds thing no they mix it up a lot um but yeah i think that was quite a big panel the other one that really got me is when you meet the bear yeah that was great he is illustrated as monstrous as he could be isn't he yep and i'm not sure how i where where i think the bear fits into it if we talk about you know the the extended metaphor of all the characters like i kind of feel like he could represent the the iraqi upper class to a certain degree yeah Um, the people who were benefiting from the system but also whose livelihoods wouldn't have been that far affected by the war i mean the bear was essentially part of the system he was a pet yeah but he he was was a pet that was fed some dissidents as well so he was very much like a basic basically a member of the party like he was like um he was essentially benefiting from the system so yeah he definitely falls into that but also just being like in this in this storytelling like a, a physical antagonist which it did come almost down to, like not to like infantilize uh, the the fight itself, but it did almost feel like the big bad of a superhero comic. Yeah, it did, didn't it? But without the slow build up of like who is this enemy in the shadows, it was more like. But it felt like a climactic. Here's our scene. <laughs> yeah, but it felt like a climactic final fight yeah. almost, and it was it was generally genuinely better than most superhero fights oh man beautifully drawn paced really well what really struck me about it is the bear kind of says oh well i was made to fight your kind of lot do you know much about the kind of um historical significance of bears fighting lions (laughs) not at all no so in jacobean england animal fights were a really common pastime Right. You'd go and watch animals fight to the extent that across the road from the original globe in Stratford upon Avon was a bear baiting ring. Right. So on a Friday night, as like a you know Jacobean English peasantry who'd saved up a few quid for a night out on a Friday, you had the choice, <laughs> and I can't believe I'm saying this, mm. between seeing Shakespeare himself, possibly in a production of one of his plays. So you could see Shakespeare as Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, or you could go across the road and watch a Pride of Lions fight a bear. And that was just, they were just your options. That was like a nightclub or the theatre, right? <laughs> the thing is, nowadays, like those two things, they've taken now, now would be stay, now they're both upper class, where he's like, should we stay in and watch some theatre or some art, or should we watch a nature documentary? Yeah. Like, it's, it's now that. But, Something happened because they had to, after a little while, start using an entire pride of lions to fight the bear. Mm. Because bears are so much more, so much fucking harder than a lion that if you put a single lion in with the bear, it would have eaten it within five minutes and you didn't get your money's worth. So they would throw entire like prides of lions Mm. at a single bear. And like, yeah, so the, the concept of lions fighting bears has this really deep historical significance. It seems like it was one of the few animals they could pick that would be 
a singular enemy antagonist yeah. and a physical threat to the entire group as well to the entire pride but again one of the articles i read did mention that they also found a rich bloke's menagerie right and there was a bear in it yeah and unfortunately that's all too common even still today the exotic animals and their <laughs> ownership and all that joe exotic Bloody joe, joe exotic being the prime one yeah and what's the other carol baskins you know that one yeah um killed her husband yeah. whacked the bit with the monkeys i thought was quite interesting yeah uh, right because they were the a, a, a kind of like a smaller antagonist along the way uh it was a they tried to kidnap the cub <laughs> yeah exactly and also mutilate him to make him look like them yeah and also they were part of the original plot to um free all the animals right they were gonna because obviously no one else had opposable thumbs yeah they were gonna open the cages yeah so when the younger female is like we had a deal like yeah. you bastards like but it, it, it's definitely a plot point to get Safa like so she can't stay so she had mm. to leave with them but it also it was it was quite quickly made them not only just antagonists but also the, the reader hated them so when Safa eats one of them or at least bites them and kills them you felt like a, it was a comeuppance of like, yeah, get them kind of thing. And that was kind of Zaffa's moment that she decided she was going to leave with the rest of the pride, wasn't it? Well, she yeah, so she said she'd made enemies so she couldn't stay there. But that's also interesting. It's like a bunch of monkeys versus one lion. Like, I like I feel like I'd not to get into the old Jacoby, I think my money would be on the lion. Yeah, my I'm, money would be on the lion there as well, mate. Not going to get into like, what would happen if 10 monkeys fought a lion? Like, we're not going to get into that. But, but it was like, it, it was a plot point it drove everything further it humanized Zafra even more um and it was like a it was a bit of tension along the way so i thought it was quite smart put together do you remember a tv show from the noughties where they like used a simulator simulate what two different historical factions would have done in a war against each other so they're like what if the shogun era samurai for a troop of roman centurions and they had teams who would work out how they were going to organize it right and they had a big computer simulated battle based on their inputs to work out who would win do you remember that tv show it was a british tv show from like the mid noughties i vague i have vague memories of it so i probably did see it at some point how sick would that be if it was just like how many monkeys would you need <laughs> yeah to take on one elderly lioness <laughs> I, I tell you how i the differences in what we were watching growing up is as soon as you said like someone versus someone what i thought was and this is deep cut niche british reference was i thought of harry hill being like well i like shogun samurais <laughs> and i like roman centurions which do i like more <laughs> that's a bunch of americans like what are they talking about now harry hill for our american listeners is a british comedian who was that? I had a medical degree. He was a doctor. He was a he GP. He was a legit doctor. He used to wear these big, thick trim glasses and a really high, high collared white shirt. And his TV show was just complete nonsense, wasn't it? Yeah, and making two random characters fight, and people would just come out in the costumes and just like beat yeah. each other up for and a it bit. And would be like, "Oh, I like, I like King Charles, and I like, you know, who could King Charles fight? Like a a sponge. Yeah. Like it was that. <laughs> it was that crazy. Yeah, 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 I like King Charles. I like a sponge. Fight. Yeah. There was a, a a good running theme in the story of whether... Well, basically, the lion's not eating. And yeah. some of it made sense, some of it didn't to me. So the two points I noticed specifically was 
um, the younger female, who I should have written their names down, um, the younger female chooses, Sonia. Sonia chooses not to eat the gazelle because she what had an agreement with them yeah just like look we were trying to bust out here we're out now you go your way we'll go ours kind of thing and that for me i was like this totally makes sense it gives sonya extra character development or just shows her character um so that all made sense then when they're leaving the zoo and they're like well what else do we eat and there's a bunch of dead bodies like half exploded animals well oh yeah yeah yeah. sorry yeah, yeah yeah go for it and they're like one of them, they, they basically say, no, we're not going to eat them. And one of them says, I prefer my meat raw. And it's like, you're being very picky now. Like, they're yeah. freshly dead. They're not like, they're not old rotting corpses. Like, they are freshly dead. carcasses. Up. But they also come upon a human carcass of one of the keepers. Yeah. But so that actually, that gave more to the story. It Whereas did, didn't I it? felt like the not eating the bodies there, I feel like the real life thing would have been that the lions at that point probably wouldn't have been that hungry. No. They the keepers throw in a donkey corpse or donkey meat essentially a full a full yeah, donkey a full corpse, one yeah. and they're like oh my god this is gonna feed us for months or whatever um so i feel like in real life the lines probably were full and then ventured out and weren't mm. that hungry whereas he's trying to get across the, he's trying to use their hunger as like a as a driving plot point yeah and i feel like that was a little bit of like a Look, we've got to address this thing because it doesn't make sense that they wouldn't just eat like the giraffe that exploded mm. or whatever. So some points it was I thought it was great storytelling. Other points I thought it was like they're just kind of like trying to push the story forward a little bit. How did you feel about the turtle as a metaphor for cultural memory? I was very interested in just what the turtle had to say. I thought initially it was just gonna be like a look, they've met a turtle. And then as soon as he was talking about like like oh the old regime and flooding like the oil polluting yeah. the water and everything and and that it was like it got very deep very quickly i think what was interesting is that turtles and tortoises once you anthropomorphize them in fiction and in myth and fable often represent a certain degree of wisdom so the tortoise and the hare or another great example from a more modern piece of fiction is the uh kung fu master and kung fu panda i had a different in my head actually it might be a, <laughs> uh, I, I know exactly what you mean they're always like portrayed as older because mainly they just, are older <laughs> well th- normally they're older because they live longer but mm. also even when they're young they just look old wrinkly so it from our personification it's like you would be the elderly they're like i'm 18 like and then you've got you know the kind of stoned one in finding nemo who that's again, what i was gonna say yeah. but again very wise well his wisdom was a bit more like ride this jet stream or whatever it was he was a pathfinder he was a stoner he was definitely a st- <laughs> he was almost certainly a st- he Noggin. said he said dude a lot dude. he was this was in the noise you won't only stoner yeah, said yeah. dude and, and, and he had like half open eyes and they were a little bit red like yeah 100 <laughs> and, and, it- and he had that bong on him <laughs> <laughs> um and it was pixar so that's absolutely in their wheelhouse of the kind of things they would do isn't it pixar's like we can do anything as long as it's not sexually explicit or uh profanities and we just make them an animal we yeah, can do anything 100 percent. but no but there was a line that really stuck with me where he said oh yeah no the last time this happened 10 years ago and you know i think talking about kind of cultural memory and the things that people don't necessarily remember but information that's handed down the idea that this wasn't the first time this had happened this wasn't the first crack the americans had had at this part of the world 
um and the fact that you know there was still this existing cultural memory and living memory i suppose of the first american invasion Mm. um and the fact that he wove that into it and he kind of put a character in there that kind of said by the way just so you remember yeah like and again the war was actively happening at this point yeah i cannot stress enough the climate that he published that into what's interesting is how economic the the storytelling is yeah it packs so much in a short time and brian kivon is is great at delivering story fast enough but also with always organic dialogue yeah so a lot of i would say lesser writers but like it takes a great writer to do this. I think if you're not like a great writer, it's it's very tempting to put in, like expositional dialogue that doesn't feel natural. He always delivers natural. Hey, big bro. Yeah. <laughs> it, it used to it used to be like, "How are you, my biological father?" And then that turned into like, "What are you doing, stepbrother?" Like, <laughs> oh, which, no. which is for different reasons. Oh but no, we different. went there. You know what's funny though? I looked up the names of the characters. Um. And the the older the sorry the younger female's name is Nor. So I'm not sure where you got Sonya from, but the <laughs> quite different. <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong. But do you know what's even better? Yeah. The reason I looked it up was because in one of my notes I addressed that character, and I didn't realize my autocorrect changed Nor to Noodles. So I looked at this one. Which one's name is Noodles? That's and then, a real insight into what you're typing into your phone. I'm just, oh, I'm, I'm doing a second podcast where I review pot packet noodles. These ones were salty, you know that kind of thing. If you would like to hear that as a barely literate episode, you can write in at comicliterate at gmail.com, and I will 100% do that. I reckon I could do an hour on noodles. But back to Nor. <laughs> actually, um, yeah, the stockpots. Yeah, great. <laughs> the Nor so they make but, a really good base for a nice fu. I don't know if that's a British thing, nor if it's, or if it's not. Oh, but if you, write in, if you have if you have Norse stockpots in your country, write in and let us know and what you think of them. Um, the reason I addressed her noodles, obviously, um, is at that point when they are talking to the old wise um, turtle tortoise turtle, turtle. is because the reason they're off doing that is because Nor and Zill go off the other direction because Nor, for lack of a better term, suddenly becomes very horny. Yeah, she she asks him to take her. Yes, and it's because he basically asserts himself as yeah. like head of the pride and that out like alphaness. And this is one of those things like our modern society, specifically male society, has totally misconstrued the whole toxic alpha as fuck. Well like the alpha male terminology yeah. and all that. It's it about was- how many Bugattis you have now. Yeah, or if you're in a Romanian prison or not. Yeah, but, this is it. Yeah, but um, the the way that started was because of a study of a pack of wolves. I know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm familiar with this. And that got taken into like, you need to be an alpha if you want to get women, because otherwise you're a beta cuck and fuck you. And then the person who wrote the original study was like, no, I was wrong. Like, I I was wrong in my results. Like, it they their hierarchy does not work like that yeah. at all. But him saying wrong did not deter the alphas i'm doing air quotes if you can't see yeah. the alphas from you know their rhetoric but yeah it was interesting that i maybe that works in lines i, I don't know i've never met a single person that i respect who has told me that they're an alpha the roundabout way of telling me you don't respect me jamie 
Well, but you are an alpha male. Thank you. Like, I, I I get that. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. Right? We will go to the nearest Weatherspoons and fight. <laughs> you have Sigma energy, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's it? You have Gamma energy. <laughs> you just radiate. Superman. <laughs> You're just the Hulk. <laughs> Who is the ultimate alpha? I uh, Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how it works in lines, if that's true or not. I, I don't know if that's one of those things that, like, someone who doesn't know would be like, oh, the alpha of the pride or whatever, but... They... Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, a an aspiring young male will either fight and fight the current alpha male, and if they win, that alpha will go off, usually to die. Or if they're not successful or they can't do it, they often just go off and form their own pride. Yeah. And so a pride, a pride, it's, it's it's uncommon for a pride of lions to have more than a couple males. They'll be they'll be the alpha male and then the younger males, and they will either usurp him or go off to form their own prides. Yeah, um, it's uncommon that you'll have more than a couple of full grown male lions in a pride of lions. Yeah, where I was getting into earlier about what is the level of personification? Like, could mm. could the lions have broken out if they, were they smart enough to arrange an actual breakout of the zoo? So we're treating them as human intelligence yeah but then when you get a scene where nor or noodles as we should call noodles, her from now on yeah um suddenly in front of a kid is like yeah i'm gonna go have sex with this guy now yeah does that then break the well are we treating them like lions or are we treating them like humans like and it- she does a really human thing afterwards where she says oh well you've used me as a vessel now you're gonna go off with mm. and that's and that's human personification so human isn't it but i did think was great was that afterwards she's like come on let's go again and he's like i, I can't the, the body is the, the mind is willing but the body is weak <laughs> but but that's i think that's an actual thing in in um, lines as well i think the males get tired very quickly and and the females yeah, don't and they, yeah they sleep a lot i think that you do see a lot of like clips of like nature things where the female becomes aggressive to the male for exactly that reason but again this is this is the thing is we're treating them as lines now for this part but you know were we the whole time or you know it it blurs that line and i think that's just an unavoidable problem with this type of storytelling yeah when you're using animals to represent something allegorical um and it and it is so interesting if i can deviate just a little bit from the the way that our allegorical perceptions of animals informed the way we studied them um foxes are a really great example foxes have had a long-standing allegorical um set of allegorical connotations the romans like to write about them we like to write about them i say we like celtic you and, and, you and me we, yeah. we write about foxes celtic and nordic culture they're all over there yeah um and it really informed the way that we thought about foxes even when we were scientifically studying them and some of our assumptions came up incorrect right yeah yeah um and it, and so you know it's it's fun to see that that relationship between the hard scientific elements and him representing these animals in their animalistic behaviors and then the more human behaviors and the allegorical stuff that he's also doing mm. and that, that that's a fun kind of aspect of this kind of fiction isn't it yeah of course um i thought that this that actually informs then the later part where they see the wild horses uh or not wild horses but there's like a herd of horses is that the the collective term a string a string of horses they a stable of horses is that one 
Well, if they're in the stable, probably. <laughs> if they're out of the stable, they become a strain. One minute. I like collective nouns. I find collective nouns fun. So put your bets in. Yes. Um, you can have a band, a harass, a herd, a stable, or a stud. Boom. I was right on two counts. You were. Yeah, you did really I well did, there. Herd was just a complete shot in the dark. Herd is the collective for any animals, or even people. You can say herd of people if you really want. No one's going to stop you. Oh, no. Collective nouns are very specific to the animal you use them for. Uh, I, call everyone a, I call everyone a herd of whatevers. Look, a herd of ants. Like, it works. <laughs> it works. <laughs> but so when they see the horses, um, the point that the females are going to have to hunt them down and yeah. chase them, and Zill makes the point of being like, I am too fat to, yeah. to chase them. And I don't, you made the point earlier, and I didn't know if this was a true thing or not, that the, the females do the hunting and the lions do the fighting. Yeah. But what I got from that point, without knowing that, was that his life in captivity has meant he is not, he doesn't have the skills. Yeah. Even, if, even if the males don't normally do it, I feel like in the wild they would still no. maybe. Okay, then you, fair enough. You very rarely see male lions hunt. A pride of lions has to be real fucking desperate for the males to hunt. Because because they have a different muscularity. Um, it's called um oh my morphism. It's a very specific kind of gender morphism that you don't really see in humans. Yeah. Um as much. But you see it massively in animals. A female lion is built to go fast. Right. A male lion is built to be strong. Right. That they makes are sense. Physiologically different creatures in their muscularity. But then the 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 only thing that made me think differently is that they all fight the bear. So the, the females are, and they say like, the females like, I'll go up for his Be- throat, you, I'll go for his balls, you know. Yeah, and but emasculating a prey animal is a really common tactic that big cats will use. Um, also really common in honey badgers. Oh yeah, they, you know what, do you know why that is? It's not too specifically, I don't know if this is all animals, I know the honey badgers, I think this is a big point of them especially bulls as well yeah is they go for the artery yeah in the in the legs and that is literally by the balls so there's a lot of once you bite the bollocks off a male animal it's much easier to catch the rest well that as well but i think also if they open that artery between the legs they'll bleed out very quickly like extremely quickly so i think and that's with the honey badger as well even if prey is bigger than it it goes for that area because if it could take it down by opening the artery then it doesn't need to fight basically don't get me wrong female lions would be proficient fighters but they're much it's much less common that two female lions will fight each other right when 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 again with a predator with a predatory animal the the only time that a female is really likely to fight unless she's hunting is if you're threatening a young and then yep. you are super fucked. But that's also generally across like mammals. Like. Yeah, that's a mammalian trait. But less so with non-predatory animals. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you're not safe with the omnivores, but with the herbivores, they're generally pretty placid. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm no David Attenborough, so... The one, the one herbivore you don't want to fuck with is a bison. I mean, hippos... Are they hippos will fuck your shit up? Yeah, they're the most da- they more deaths per capita than any other animal. I think they're the most the dangerous animal in Africa. Dangerous animal in Africa, um, in terms of direct 
in a direct action yeah whereas mosquitoes are because of malaria yeah. but if you take away the disease aspect there i think they're number one an animal i wouldn't want to fuck with is a giraffe yeah they swing their heads like bloody uh maces their they? striking distance is incredible watching two and when david attenborough caught that that was one of the first times i'd ever been caught on film like the extent to which david attenborough is a popular intellectual has like broadened our understanding of animals is fucking incredible and he barely does any of the work he just turns nowadays up the... yeah. when he was younger he was there behind the camera okay that i i understand that yeah I mean, he, well he got to a certain age they were like look just calm down we'll we'll, we'll film your thing in peace and do you know how he does it now uh voiceover well yeah obviously he does that bit but he has such an extensive knowledge of animal behavior that he will write a script for a bunch of behaviors that he knows a certain animal will exhibit right mm. he'll script the full documentary and then he'll send a bunch of camera crews out and be like, you need to get these shots. I know these animals do these things, so you just need to watch them until they do, because this is the narrative I want to show. And so it's kind of inherently dishonest, but it's incredible that he has such, he's such a good researcher and he has such a good understanding of it that he can say, yeah, I know a giraffe will do this if you watch it for long enough. And I think it would be really interesting to get on camera. So go find it for me. You know, if I was him, I would probably just phone in at a point and be like, yeah, so in my research, uh, drafts ride skateboards. Um, <laughs> it's very rare. No one's caught it yet. Uh, so make sure you get that one. And then when they come back, it's like, yeah, we didn't see them riding skateboards. Like, oh, well, I guess you didn't do your job well enough. Yeah, so, you just, no, didn't, just yeah. Uh, no, you didn't document it then. <laughs> I do know it happens. Um, <laughs> I saw it in Borneo. <laughs> so we're... 1953... <laughs> We're near the end, and just touching on one little bit at the end, which, because my notes are, cr like, chron chronological. I make them as I read them. But one interesting thing I've thought, again, coming back to the personification of the animals, yeah. the non-personification of the soldiers by not showing their faces. Mm. I thought that was a very obvious, well-done technique of, again, uh, exactly as I just said, um, but literally just showing the backs of the you soldiers. You didn't see a single human face. Exactly. Even yeah. the, yeah, even the bodies later and everything. They were all face down. Yeah. And, yeah, and I suppose it's interesting because a lion probably wouldn't read too much on our faces. Like, large mammals, particularly predatory ones, mostly go off body language. And so actually, because we're seeing it from the lion's perspective, it makes a lot of sense that there wouldn't be much of a focus on faces, which is obviously a big driving force for us. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it helped as well because a lot of the human beings we were going to see would be American soldiers. I think the reason for it was because it focused, it kept the focus of the story on the animals only, in the way that the metaphor is on the civilians. Yeah, and it made the Americans and part of just the overall invasion. So it made the soldiers seem more of a part of like this force yeah. of nature that's just passing through and causing destruction. Yeah. So by not showing their faces they are part of this overwhelming force entirely and the the other part of the ending was the epilogue um which stated the it, it stated the story which was four lions ex escaped from the zoo and were shot down by american soldiers and then the next page mm. the last page it says just one line says there were other casualties as well i thought uh. that was such a like a hitting line yeah, that just that... summed everything up. You know, I didn't read the epilogue. <laughs> <laughs> so, just so you know. <laughs> well, fuck. Telling you for the first time. 
Yeah. Fuck, it's... live reaction, guys. Yeah, no, that's um, that's something, isn't it? I think it, it succinctly ties it all together, isn't it? That these deaths happened, and it, it, by being so vague, it just tells you, it, get, it gets across the scope of how big the casualties and disaster was by just saying there were others as well. It, it doesn't, it's not like, it's not that there was just one or two others, but that there were so many others that they can't get into. That's what that yeah. line said to me. And I suppose, you know, again, something that I've come back to so many times, but I think it's so important, is that we didn't even know how many fucking casualties there were from that war in 2006. Nope, nope. We, 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 were, getting, we were getting really accurate figures of how many British, American, and Australian soldiers were dying. But in terms of Iraqi civilians, I don't even think we have a good number now. I think it's it, it's it was such a chaotic time, and mm. that's why they can't really know. I think that's the problem, and inherently, one of the biggest problems of war in general. Yeah, um, fucking a. And to to sum up this episode, I think we can all agree war is bad. War is bad, kids. Yeah, don't um, do it. Yeah, if you're a politician listening right now, don't do war. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I think I like I would really recommend this. This yeah. I, I mean I I I was I read it quite late at night and it affected me so much that I went back through it. This is one I would put in the it should be in schools category. Yeah, do you know what? Yeah, I agree with you. Certainly in American schools. Yeah. This um, is, this is one that needs to be put in. So the Republicans can ban it. It needs to get into that yeah. pipeline. Book banning in America is wild, man. There's, there, there's an author that I've followed for a long time. Um, nobody, nobody who's listening to this is not going to know John Green. Mm. Um, one of John Green's books. So, sorry to the one person who doesn't know John Green. It's like, oh, man. Dude, if, if you don't know who John Green is, read The Anthropocene Reviewed and Turtles All the Way Down. They're both phenomenal. Um... One, there's, there's like his first novel has these two scenes in it that come directly one after the other and they play off each other. There's one really mechanical, awkward instance of a handy J. There's a really awkward, clumsy handy J that nobody really enjoys. See, when you say handy J, <laughs> all I think of is a DJ's hand. The way you say it, really? Yeah, you hand don't think, DJ. You don't think of you know little. little I think cheeky... H- HJ is uh, is the term. Really? Like if you're gonna if you're gonna abbreviate at all, HJ is like no, it's a the... handy J. <laughs> ah. <laughs> it sounds like that Kevin and Perry are like get off my hand DJ. <laughs> <laughs> we're deep. We're brother DJs. Um, yeah. So there's there's this really like awkward mechanical hand job. And then there's a really intimate scene that follows it, which is just kissing, but both characters come away from it really fulfilled, and it's this really intimate experience for them. And John Green is, you know, he he was a student, he was a student chaplain in a children's hospital. He studied theology at university. He was gonna be a chaplain, he was gonna be a priest. He's a Christian man. And the whole cut and thrust of those two scenes is that intimate kissing can be a lot more gratifying than emotionally devoid sex, right? Right. We are talking like 16, 17 years under, after publication. That book is still being banned from libraries. Right. And, you know, kind of like, I mean, to hear him articulate it, he says, oh, the argument is that, when, you know, when I make that argument, people say children won't understand it. 
And he says, well, stop condescending to teenagers. This is why the book is being taught. Because it has a like, real potent message that teenagers possibly need to hear sometimes. And you're, take, you're robbing them from that experience. We don't have as much book banning here in the UK. No, we're, we're a lot more like, it's fine, don't worry about it. We're, it's not being politicized here. Mm. That's the difference. Um, there's conversation you can have about what, what kind of content children should or should not be exposed to. But at the end of the day, when all the books you're banning have some kind of like political leaning in some way or cultural leaning, then it kind of dilutes that message. Yeah. But I think what's really interesting here is that this book could be read as being quite critical of the war. But something that isn't as important in the UK that is very important in America still, he's not unpatriotic at any point. It's the the problem you get into there is by showing facts, and again, that's a lightly used term because of the whole personification of animals yeah, and everything, yeah. but by showing certain facts, some people take that as unpatriotic. That's the problem. And and I, and I suppose this is something that maybe it's because as Europeans, and I use that term really lightly now for us in the UK, unfortunately, we've had to interface with that for a bit longer. You know, we we live in a country that once had an empire, and so we have to reconcile ourselves to that. Um, being you know, post post empire Britons, whereas in America, you know, they always kind of like to view themselves as a righteous force for good. And actually, when you're invading other countries, that gets called into question inherently, right? Yeah. Um, and the Americans do fucking love an invasion: Korea, Vietnam, Iraq twice, Afghanistan, Syria, been all over the fucking shop. I do always feel like the, the need to point out for the Americans who are still listening, when we say the Americans, we meet, we refer to the general population oh, of a country. We know there's a big anti-war yeah, yeah, section no, of, of course, yeah, even yeah. back then, even more so now. So we, we know you're out there, but when we say... We mean the American establishment, right? Yes. And, like, I, th- and I think it's also fair to say that we, we use the term the British a lot when we say like, oh, the British do this and that. And Yeah, I mean, I, I literally just said we in reference to the empire. That yes. happened a few hundred years ago. Ryan and I didn't colonize anywhere. But when I, talk I haven't about, colonized in ages. No, I, yeah, I haven't done any colonizing in a while. But when I talk about the British empire, I still use the royal we, right? Because that's the country I'm from and that's part of my country's history. Yeah, of course. And, and I suppose this is, this is kind of, yeah. And, you know, I think there's a certain element of revisionist history that happens with some of that stuff. Mm. But this is a very kind of honest, non-partisan look at what happened. Yeah. And I think that's really valid and really interesting. It, it's absolutely necessary for anyone who's who not, as I said, going to politicize it. It's an absolutely essential um, part of reviewing history, I would say. And it's now, it's now history because it's 20 but years ago. I suppose it's, it's funny when we talk about politicizing and not politicizing stuff. Um, do you know who Angela Carter is? No, I don't. Fucking sick British writer from the 80s and 90s. She's dead now, bless her. Um, she said that in an interview once, she said, everything now is political. When somebody double parks their Porsche, that is political, mm. right? Like, it's not just somebody trying to protect their nice car. When you, you know, you double park a supercar, that is, that is now a kind of politicized action. And so it's, it's, it's difficult in our day and age where the, you know, our politics are so intrinsically linked to our economics that something like this is going to be inherently be a little bit political. 
But I think he's done a really good job of it being as non-partisan as it can be. As non-partisan as it as a as it realistically realistically could be if you're not worried about upsetting certain portions of the of bases of political bases yeah absolutely and again you know as ryan just mentioned i want to reiterate when i talk about america i'm talking about america with a capital a yep i'm not talking about americans i think the only reason i made that point is i think if i were an american i would be of the of the anti-war type and i mean i'd I'd be as anti-war as i am now still and if I heard someone else being like, oh, the Americans love war, I'd be like, I know what you mean, but also you, you feel that instinctive, like, defensiveness of like, well, not all of us, you know, that kind of thing. I honestly think <laughs> that if I was raised in certain parts of America, I would be like a shotgun toting Lone Star State redneck. I think you would be uh, a liberal redneck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, like, I would be in a plaid shirt with a trucker hat and a shotgun yeah going oh god have you seen what they've done this week <laughs> you would you would be and this 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 bodes very well with the fact that you're wearing overalls right now as well <laughs> yeah. I, I think you would be one of those rednecks who would be like i just think that the gay couples should be able to own guns and protect themselves <laughs> you'd be like both sides of like yeah i'd be arguing for the second amendment rights of gay people <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh mate Oh, what a life. Li- oh, imagine in another life, you and me. What could have been? And in- what better way to end it on than uh, than this? Are we done? We, we're, we're, I mean, we could have probably been done a while ago. Yeah, but I'm having fun. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's also interesting that of the two of us, who needs to be like, up early in the morning? Yeah, I've got a 5 a.m. start, baby. <laughs> and then you were like, the thing with politics is, it's like, well, yeah, he wants to go all night. Like, geez. Well, I, I, you know, I, 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 just, I just think that. Again, it's a testament <laughs> for anyone listening. The cat just tried to jump on the table and managed to get her claws into the screen of Ryan's phone. Yeah, it was it was very enjoyable because it's it's not like a phone that's like paid on payments or anything. So no, fuck up as much as you want, cat. You know. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's a testament to how good the book is. Yeah, it's absolutely. It, it's prompted me to want to go, but this right. Yeah, I think if. What's the interesting crossover and another testament to the book is if we were doing a political podcast, you could do an episode on this book and it would be just as relevant to that topic as is us just talking about comic books, graphic novels. Yeah, it really could be, couldn't it? Um, I almost think it would be more interesting in that context. I mean, I'd like to listen to a political podcast that talked about it. People who are far more knowledgeable than us. Joe Rogan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, imagine, imagine Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson talking about masculinity through the lens of Zilla. The problem with Zilla is he didn't take enough ice baths. (laughs) I think that's. (laughs) But he did only eat meat and salt, so Jordan Peterson would be all about that shit. And Joe Rogan loves animal fights, so the lion of the bay'd be like. Jamie, pull up the weight of a bear. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Joe Rogan. What a guy. What a man. It, what, what a legend. What, uh, oh, yeah. And on that note, I think I've said this three times now. Why, why don't you take us home? Um, thanks for listening. I've had a lot of fun today. I hope you have had some fun as well, despite it being quite a difficult topic. If you would like to send us death threats, as I've mentioned earlier on in the podcast, you can email us at comicliterate@gmail.com. Fantastic. If you want to see... Oh, look, Ryan's like... Ryan, <laughs> right, is like a football dad. He just saw me make a decent pass and he was like, get in, Sam. You're doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you want to see a little bit... Well, if you want to see some choice cuts, 
of our content, you can head over to the Comic Literate YouTube channel and there are some shorts there, which are just Ryan's favourite bits that he's animated over. I like watching them every week and you probably will too. Two things. One, choice cuts. I thought it was a great reference to like uh, carnivores and... <laughs> you spoil it every time. <laughs> that's, that's the joke. <laughs> that was the joke. Why do you do this? And the other point is uh, there's probably not going to be a short about this episode because I think the most of the topics are not quite in like a look at this funny little bit from our podcast like the political climate in this in this day and age is is distressing. I like, didn't get to make my flaming bush joke. I mean, do you want to now? <laughs> That's what a what a vague thing to end. It was on. never that funny. <laughs> like there were like you know we're talking Middle East biblical reference, also George Bush. It kind of fitted. God, but... That's so many. That's so many points to like. <laughs> well, this is why I didn't say it. There was no good time to say it. If you happen to know a lot about politics and theology, I've got a cracking joke for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.